2: Oh, hello, it's Thursday, and it's time to welcome you to Waypoints, where the Waypoint staff and friends take a break to nerd out and deep dive on the culture, art, and entertainment that's inspiring and provoking us lately. Gathered around the table this Thursday, we've got Patrick Klepik. Hello. Danielle Riando. Hi, hello. And Austin Walker.
0: Rob, you seem particularly provoked today. What's-
3: <laughs> Very provoked.
2: Are you alright, buddy? Um. Yeah. So do you hear this? Uh, it was a really great story uh, that came out last week. Uh, really. Um. I mean, right encapsulating something. Yeah, yeah. We're jumping into
1: it. What's What's up, Rob? You look upset. Yeah. Um. What if we'd recorded this podcast this morning?
2: <laughs> I know. Okay. Fair. Yeah. No, you fu- You found that piece early. Like you were You were on it. You had not early enough. That if up. we'd
1: done it at like eleven a.m., I don't mm-hmm. think.
2: Yeah, anyway, they could at have 11 bro- a.m. We our, our could have record- had this
0: conversation and it could have broken in the middle of the recording. That's correct.
2: Oh, we could have had a live make- milkshake ducking yeah. uh, <laughs> with the uh, We Regret to Inform You. Uh, no. All <laughs> no, our takes are bad. Yeah. Uh, so the other week there was this piece from a uh, food critic over at Thrillist, Kevin Alexander. Mm -hmm. Uh, talking about, and it's got a great title, I found the best burger place in America, and then I killed it. And it's this sort of like... (laughs) Can I just say that every
0: time I read that thing, I go in my head, and then I freaked it. Because, anyway,
2: because we're good, good. we're good, we can continue. Good. So, the story he's telling is basically, he went on a national, like, what's the best burger in America? All of the United States. And he goes to all sorts of burger joints and mom and pops and he finds the greatest burger at this tiny, humble little diner in uh, Portland, Oregon. Yeah. And he names it as the best burger in America. And like within six months, the place is shut down. It's closed. (laughs) And the the story this guy tells is like popularity did this place in like. They could not stand the scrutiny uh, and the popularity that came with being named Thrillist's Greatest Burger Joint in, in America.
0: <laughs> Rob, when you put it that way, you're
2: starting to undercut it even now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, well, obviously there, there was a bit of self-importance in that framing, right? It was a little bit of a naval naval gazy piece. Now, here's their thing, though. Thrillist lists are pretty fucking good. Not gonna lie. Mm-hmm. Like they Like there's a lot of like sites that do these lists. Thrillists tend to be pretty solid. Uh, and that's kind view, of
0: but, what he was saying too. Was yeah. that like a. He one of the things that I think made this story so attractive before we even get into the meat of it is that the frame of it was like media elite bait. For people who work in the media industry, it was speaking to shit we've dealt with over the last decade. The rise of the algorithm, the period of time by which you could game Facebook by doing lists and listicles. Um, and what he was saying was like, I want to do it. I, I decided I wanted to do it the right way. It's easy to do top 10 fast food burgers because that's just bullshit that you knock out in an afternoon. What if I could get thrillists? To pay me to go around the country and actually try all the burgers and then eat them and then make a real ass rating.
1: He, did he the math.
0: He, did was the a math. Bit, he showed his work.
1: There was a little bit as I read that that I was like, all right, that's what every fucking journalist says. Like, if you just gave me the time and go do the yep. authentic thing. I'm gonna get you the real story. it also do real good traffic. It'll do real You know real what well. the reality is? Most of the time, it doesn't do very good traffic and you actually should have just done the cynical thing.
0: Patrick, everybody should go read
1: Patrick's article.
0: Um, one designer's fifteen-year journey to ship the Doom mod. He that started this
1: team. Not the point. I was Are making, you sure? I, I'm. I am sure. Actually, you, you want just to read it it from today. the Discord?
0: You know. Yeah.
1: Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> you should continue. Convenient, but n- not actually, But you, you got me. Not mm-hmm. what I was trying to do. But you mm-hmm. got me
3: anyway. Mm-hmm.
2: It still fits. The shoe is still
3: on my foot. <laughs> it's on
2: there. So the thing is. Uh, so the the version of the story, he sort of he come he he has already reached his conclusion before he begins researching this follow up story, right? That's the other thing is he understands mm. that like after like somehow after he gave that that rating and after he gave that ranking, that place went under fast, and he comes back to it with the conclusion that like on some level, what I did sank this place, and he comes back and revisits the story, and it's a meditation on. Uh, and I think, mean, and, and I still think, there's a lot that is worthwhile in this piece about what it's reflecting on and what these sort of rankings, these neighborhood guides, what they're all trying to speak to and what they're trying to accomplish. And yet, his central character here is uh, the, the the guy who runs this diner. Uh, What's his name? Ray Stanich. Steve. Steve, Steve. Stanich. Got Steve. that good alliteration. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So Steve Stanich, and he links back up with the guy, and he asks, "So what happened?" And he's told the story of, like, how the popularity crushed the place. It wasn't equipped to handle it. It couldn't scale. Uh, And it was just too stressful. And there's a subtext of there's some other shit going on with this guy. The way the interview with him is described is a little uncomfortable. Like, it sounds like this is a guy who's going through some stuff. But fundamentally, nothing in the piece makes you think that, like, anything else happened here other than... You know, tiny neighborhood joint, gets national attention, becomes a destination uh, for tourists, and completely shatters under the pressure. This morning... Uh, Here we go. A piece was published at what, the Willamette Gazette. Mm-hmm. Uh, taught, like That looks into the background of the story. And there's actually a way uglier uh, and less poetical... Uh, But also much more conventional uh, story that happened here, which is that this is a family business and Steve Stanich uh, has basically destroyed his relationship with his family because uh, or (laughs) in part because uh, he was arrested for uh, strangling his wife. Um in In front front of of their house. In front of their son, yeah. Yeah,
3: stage four breast cancer at the time as well. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Not to death, but I'm not this is not a defense of Steve Stanich, to be clear. No. But I just wanted to clarify it was not a murder (laughs) that was not a murder,
3: but
0: a (laughs) which would have been a whole other yeah, but an assault, a domestic assault of, of a terrible sort. To someone who is is very, Ill. very, very ill, all of which is just contributing to something that's already terrible.
2: Yeah. And then okay. in the wake of that, uh, so naturally there's been an, uh, a divorce, uh, and Steve Stanich is also kind of uh, reneging on a lot of the commitments he made during those divorce proceedings, as well as he apparently – uh, is now also in a lot of legal trouble due to like various uh, driving under the influence, uh, you know, charges that have been lev- levied against him. So uh, the story question, per- just, just so <laughs> no. people, it's from the Willamette Week.
0: It's did a rave review really shut down Portland, shut down Portland burger bar Staniches? Question mark. Maybe it was the owner's legal troubles. <laughs> Which is such
3: a sideline. Which side are
2: extensive. Eye. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Uh, and so this all came out this morning, and uh, Patrick spotted it quickly, which I'm, I'm very glad he did, because otherwise we would have recorded like 30 minutes on, you know, this good, <laughs> humble, American restaurateur. What a funny uh, guy. Just living you know? his life. Um, in retrospect, though, that
1: paragraph in the story, I, I stared at it for a yes, while. Same. Um, I don't have the story up in, in front of me. Does someone have the, I got the it. piece? And can you just uh, read that paragraph?
0: Yeah, totally. Um, uh, so he's setting up. He says, this, the, the closing of the restaurant, I tell him, actually sounds like it was my fault. I put a target on their back by naming them number one, blah, blah, blah. Standage says, no, no, successful people don't blame others. And then in a the quieter voice, he started to explain why it wasn't just two weeks, why the, the restaurant hadn't just cl- closed for two weeks. He asked me not to reveal the details of that story, but I can say that there were personal problems, the type of serious things that can happen with any family and would have happened regardless of how crowded Stanich's was and that real life is always more complicated and messier than we want it to be and that that stuff was happening in the background on top of ongoing It's a good I, rhetorical
1: drama. flourish, but there's – in especially in retrospect, not enough yeah. like real talk on like – Like, if you're – I mean, obviously, like, I do all sorts of reporting and I have, like, concealed – and not concealed, but, like, not published certain information based on the request of a source. Maybe you're, you know, protecting their employment, you know, for whatever. There's all sorts of reasons that you don't do that. But then when you go to the degree of disclosing – like, usually you don't disclose that you're not not publishing information. You just don't publish it because of reasons. The point when you do that increasingly, especially in retrospect – there's not enough. That doesn't, that doesn't pass muster. Like I looked at that as a reporter and like held my tongue, thinking, hmm. like the word "serious" is is. <sighs> I'm s- getting stuck on that word. Now it was just to say he, the, the the writer who has not really responded because all this is probably happening very fast. he gave a quote to the original paper that found uh, or, or summarized these allegations, and he uh, the author claimed that what he was told is not the information that's coming out. If I had to take a wild guess, it's somewhere in between. Yeah, going um, yep. oh, through a that's bad divorce. Was, that's
3: exactly what I was going to say. That like every time, and I've certainly known plenty of people who sound a lot like Stephen here. It'll be oh, I had a fight with my wife. You know how it is mm-hmm. with the kids and the wife and the divorce. And you know, Ugh. I can just hear the bluster because this guy Lawyers. blusters. All it sounds like you know. There's a passage where a woman comes in. Just a, a regular, a local comes in, and she's like, when are you going to open up? And apparently he times it, the writer times it, that it's six minutes of this <laughs> and that and, like, blustering about this mm-hmm. and talking about that and blah, 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 before he's finally like, thanks for your business or whatever. And she's like, oh, okay, I'll, yeah. I'll come back. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's 100%. I can imagine him saying, I had a fight with my wife, you know, didn't look good, you know, but he didn't. I'm sh- I am oh. I I would bet $1,000 she didn't oh. say, well... I have these assault charges? <laughs> uh, like,
2: no, right. but I mean, if you if you say like, "Hey, I'm dealing with some like uh, drinking issues, and my wife and I split up." Right. right, I would like I could easily imagine I'd be like whoa okay yeah. uh, I'm not gonna what, what right, does fine. that have to yeah. do with this what does that yeah, seemingly weird. have to do with this story right
0: yeah
3: right. and you dig but, deeper
0: there right that's the thing that's when you that, look it up. <laughs> that the irony here is that this is a piece supposed to this is a piece that that the heart of it the reason it was passed around so much was partially the framing around around algorithmic you know increases in story reader readership but also because it was about journalistic ethics and the question that we hey as people who cover culture and who cover the world what is the effect of our coverage? It's a question we've asked ourselves a lot this year, yes. both in positive and negative times. Right? Like we say, OK, could have we handled this differently? Or, hey, do we have a responsibility to talk about this very difficult thing because we know what the outcome will be if we're quiet about it? Mm-hmm. And – then this happens, and it's like it falls in on itself because there's this other type of journalistic integrity and responsibility, which is to check your fucking facts and to like make sure you're reporting out all the sides of the story, even when it costs you more legwork, even when it could undercut the very sweet and clean version of the story you were hoping
1: to be able to tell. Because, yeah. because if you, if you, as a, seen with a reporter's perspective. There's an even, like, there's a stronger version of this story yeah. with all of this information in which, like, if again, from, like, the, like, uh, journalistic meta perspective is that, like, often you go into a story with preconceived notions, with a narrative, um, because you have to, you can't just go into a story with no sense of where it's going. The, the, the facts may take you elsewhere. The story may take you elsewhere. But usually you go in with some sort of frame and then you see how the details fall within that frame and you massage as you get there. Like there would like, there's a very compelling piece in which like well, halfway through it's like, well, that's the story I thought I was writing. Yeah. But like, this is what I actually found out about this person. And here's what complicates like this, like sweet narrative that I, you know, had, had gotten us from A to B, but where mm-hmm. we actually arrive at at C is something far different, muddier, yeah. uglier. Um, And
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh so it ends up being a uh it's frustrating because I, I think what is interesting here, and this is why I was you know too good a story to fully vet, uh is that it was such a perfect illustration of something that I think a lot of people have observed anecdotally or feel is happening on some level. With particularly like cultural criticism, uh, like, you know, being a culture editor of a city newspaper or being a, a food critic. Anyone who is sort of, uh, you know, reviewing, rating, ranking, uh, taste making for a community and directing audiences uh, to uh, directing audiences to places uh, with an eye toward finding Ever more authentic, underground, mm-hmm. uh, like you know, yeah, um, local places. Um, and this story was kind of a perfect exemplar of that. Like you could not like the version of Steve Stanish that this guy had bought into, and Stanish's uh, restaurant was like the ideal. Like you know, you can almost you can see that diner in your mind's eye. <laughs> what it was like stepping into it, and you can imagine how a place like that would sink like a stone. Uh, Under a crush of of Mm -hmm. uh, the sort of people who do sort of like who always make a point to visit the top ranked places, right? To you know, take the photo of you know the 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 food you're being served at at a trendy joint, Uh, but that just proves not to be the story here. Uh, And so it's it's a much more conventional story of. It's a family business and some awful things happen within that family and, you know, the uh, – <laughs> the, the guy running the business turns out to be an abuser and, you know, wipes out uh, – Responsible for his own problems. Yeah. As it turns out. So, uh, yeah. <sighs> that, and that's why I would have preferred just to talk about the raid. <laughs>
1: Never seen that is uh, in my top ten. I, that every like six months or so, I tell myself, I why haven't I seen? Yeah, that, watch no. the
2: raid, dude. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, it's on Netflix. The, it's the raid. We're redemption. watching the.
1: We're watching the raid. We're playing the order. Um,
2: okay. Okay. Yeah, that's been decided. Yeah. We're making this wow.
3: today. <laughs> yep.
0: Jesus, um, I think
3: they're gonna hear this one first. Probably. Probably Darn. hear this
0: before we do the raid cast. Don't
3: worry about it. Yeah. 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 <laughs>
0: uh-huh. <laughs> God. Whew. Do you have anything else on Staniches, or are we are we able to eject here? And, and is that what they call their burgers, Staniches? Yeah,
3: I think we should give him a knuckle Stanich, which ties into our next waypoint.
0: Oh wow! Did you like? I that? didn't expect the segue, the seg there. You know, what's our next right. waypoint? What is our next waypoint? Well,
3: it's Rob's job. I just was so excited to have that. You know, <laughs> sorry, Rob. Well, no, take it Continue. away. Continue. <laughs> Continue. All right, let's give him a knuckle sandwich, as in. What you do in the beautiful, wonderful, great sport of mixed martial arts, oh. which is my waypoint this week. Uh, let me get the title of it because I was so excited to get that joke right, you, what, and then I don't have the title. It is in front it of is me. a
0: series over on SB Nation called "Fighting in the Age of Loneliness."
3: Correct. Yes. Uh. Uh, a five-part or six-part Five documentary part. series? Five-part documentary series. We've seen the first two for Waypoints today. I'm not sure if the third one is up yet as of recording. Uh, but it goes into the history and the politics of MMA, of, of specifically of the UFC, uh, but also mixed martial arts as a sport in general. And its rise to prominence, it's very sort of weird rise to prominence because it is a very weird sport. So it actually starts in on uh, some good old Ronald Reagan and uh, goes through the bluster of several sort of modern era presidents, uh, ties very directly into sort of the economics and politics of the times. Uh, talking about the 80s and then the early 90s, the UFC started in 1993. So it's, it's a bunch of stuff that kind of uh, coincides with that. Uh, the first episode starts in on these these sort of grand notions about the presidents of the U.S., about Reagan and what Reaganomics kind of did to our country, it goes into things like the Gulf War, the Clinton era, et cetera, and then ties that into uh, the Anderson Silva, Chris Weidman fights in July of 2013, which is considered to be, uh, at least the thesis here is that's considered to be sort of the, the beginning of this era, the sort of mm. mega popular superstardom era of MMA and the UFC. Uh, which is a, it was a major fight. It was a really, really gross fight. It was from a little bit before my time as a mega fan. Mm-hmm. And I suppose I should set this up as a person who trains in MMA, who competes in at least the grappling half of MMA and uh, loves it and loves the sport, uh, despite a lot of problematic elements, uh, which we'll go into.
0: This is sort of like, this whole piece feels like a love letter to your problematic fave. Yes. But then parentheses, but not for the reasons you think it's problematic. 100%. Right?
3: Yeah. Uh, that is crystallizes exactly uh how i feel about the sport especially the ufc which i have more problems with than you know smaller uh fighting uh conventions and so on and so forth uh but yeah and it goes into the history uh you know so we're looking at the politics of the era we're looking at this particular fight in 2013 and then it goes into the actual history of mixed martial arts which begins as sort of a the fighting arts these sort of um Open hand fighting arts of the samurai, uh, which, of course, like many things, was like part of a privileged class, something that only the samurai families knew and were taught in. And then, of course, it kind of filters down. I am super – I'm going really quickly here through this stuff. Uh, But it goes down uh, and the Gracie family in Brazil sort of uh, take a lot of the judo and jujitsu, which are the two specific arts that are sort of uh, framed here as the main things. Uh, and also Vale Tudo a little bit uh, and a few other things. But the really the general thing here being a lot of these sort of grappling arts and uh, open-hand arts, no weapons. Uh, and how the Gracie family are basically <laughs> Brazilian jiu-jitsu royalty, which they absolutely are. There's a Henzo Gracie Academy a mile from here. Mm. It's one of the best schools in America. Uh, and how that kind of fed into – this era of the ufc and of oh this we can make money doing this we can actually make a ton of money doing this people are going to watch this people are going to buy tickets for this holy shit so this weird martial art with all this bizarre history and a lot of multiple eras of class history as well feed into oh my god this sport can make tons of fucking money Mm -hmm. and be such a huge big thing rob i know you're
2: yeah i mean (laughs) it's an interesting series like it's it's like a video lecture on the history of <laughs> MMA, and it's trying to both get at what is at the heart of MMA, and then what is at the heart of our culture's growing obsession and fascination with with MMA. And I think there's, I think it's a very uneven uh, series. I, <laughs> I, I have to say, like I think its gestures toward cultural critique aren't that convincing, at least to me. Like it feels very much like Chapo B-roll. Uh, I mean, in, in some ways.
3: <laughs> you should oh, actually start out. Oh yeah, oh, yeah.
2: let's let's yeah, please. This go
3: for f- it.
1: watching this felt like a giant troll, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I got like five minutes into this and I was like, is this, was this just a giant conspiracy to make me listen to fucking Chapo Trap House all over again?
2: <laughs> why did you ever stop? Well, well I know why, but uh, nevertheless... <laughs> no, I mean, so the, the na- our, our narrator, uh, our, our uh, in, you know, our investigator, our guide mm-hmm. for this is uh, Felix Biederman, uh, you know, who, who many of you may be familiar with from uh, the Chapo Trap House All the gray podcast. wolves out there are, are already howling. <laughs> howling, Felix yeah, howling yeah. again. And... Um.
0: And it's uh, John Boyce. We should also say John, John Boyce, Boyce is the director and producer of the piece. So yes. it has his his flourishes, his style of like. It
3: feels like a pretty good. If you've ever watched yeah, if you one watched a pretty
0: good. It feels like a
2: a long form, pretty good. Yeah, pretty yeah. good as
0: the series by John Boyce. People should look into that.
3: And, it's and it uses some
2: <laughs> aesthetics that he's used in yeah. in previous. Uh, you know, multimedia presentation because John boys great writer, but also like one of the things that made a lot of his work exciting was that he's also starting to push against the boundaries of like, what does content on the web look like? Uh, at this point now, apparently it looks like a YouTube video, but, uh, (laughs) nevertheless, longer though Uh, than most, you know, Uh, well, look, CMSs are hard. Making them do cool things is hard.
0: Yeah. YouTube
2: though, YouTube. Uh, anyway, (laughs) So I I think the things that I find most compelling is like Biederman clearly knows his shit about fighting history and mixed martial arts history and like his excitement and interest and passion for the evolutionary movements within this field and where they sort of come from and who the major players are is palpable and it, like – it gave me so much more context for stuff that I'm familiar with from my days of watching like the ultimate fighter reality show. Uh, yep. But that it was never really like parsable to mm-hmm. me. Uh, and also I think he's got kind of a fascination for the fight game in particular and in, in all its incarnations. Uh, and I fold wrestling under this as well for this, for the purposes of this, I would say like it's always attracted Kind of a mix of, like, skilled, you know, craftsmen, uh, charlatans, mm-hmm. uh, suits, uh, and obsessives. And he sort of, I think, has a great deal of interest and affection for, for those kinds of scenes, even as he sees how they can sort of sew the, uh, like lay the groundwork for a lot of rot, uh, you know, at, at the heart of something.
0: Yeah, I think it you know, from the, the the first episode is called The Invention of Fighting for Money. The second is the unwashed masses clamor for weird men brutalizing each other, and the third is the Yakuza find something to do with their money. Um and so there is a through line here that is often about class struggle or about the ways in which um, combat sports are often attractive to uh, working class folks, to oppressed folks, to people who want to literally want and need to know how to fight. Um, but often are – those people are preyed on or put in the ring or are, are kind of monetized by those who are rich either through the monopoly over combat sport technique and the ownership of training methods or through the the operation of uh, – of, of, um, uh, I keep want to say publications and that's super wrong – promotions yeah. um, and connections to established legal figures or, or, or government figures, political figures who can clear the way to allow um, for these fights to happen legally and for a lot of money. I think that stuff mostly works for me because it's it's so clearly rooted in history that he understands and some of the stuff around the Brazilian scene and the, the different kind of um, – the conflicting styles of of uh, combat sport at the time, really fascinating. The stuff that ends up being really interesting to me, but I don't know where it come where I come down on it yet. And my hope is by the fifth episode, I'll have a better understanding. Is some of the stuff that's happening here with questions of identity, with questions of what combat sports are for and who they're for, both in terms of practitioners and in terms of um, uh, uh, spectators. Like the the two things that come to mind here – and I know you have some notes on this, Danielle. The first is the this relationship between identity and the body. There's this whole section in which he's talking about Kano Jigoro, who is uh, this guy who wanted to be in combat sports. He wanted to be in jiu-jitsu. Um, and he was 5'2 and 90 pounds Mm -hmm. and surrounded by big tough guys. And there's this quote that Felix uses, which is that uh, that Jigoro wanted to, quote, use martial arts as a fulcrum against those parts of oneself that make them feel as though they did not belong. And that continues throughout the piece. This idea that fighting sports and martial arts are ways of building the self um, and ways of kind of mushing on yourself until you find something in there that is you that can go wherever it wants, both in terms of like I can walk down the street at night and kick anybody's ass who comes at me or in terms of I can look in the mirror and what I see is me and I'm happy with that. Um, and I think that's already very like powerful and potent and and difficult material. Um, there's a reason why I suspect this series is called "Fighting in the Age of Loneliness," but also there's this other turn in that second episode that ends up being about spectatorship, but still about identity, which is that Felix positions the rise of MMA, and this isn't, an, I think, a unique thing. Daniel, you can speak. It's to this. not unique. Yeah. That that the rise of MMA is a response to the rise of '90s political correctness. Uh, that it is the the Popularity, its growth, is a response to identity politics, to what Felix calls HR culture, con- contrasting it to PC culture. And there's a quote there in which he says um, that you know he's, he sees it as a response to quote 90s professionalism and bloodlessness, um, and 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 says that quote the main point of, of PC culture was not to protect the individual but the company. We never really stopped doing things because we cared about the feelings of others. We did them because we'd be shoved out the window with no net to catch us and this is for me like I've listened to Chapo. Like obviously you know who the fuck I am. But also one of my consistent critiques of Chapo is that they often will default to this unspoken we. Who is the we in the sentence? Yeah. We will be shoved out the window with no catch, uh, with no net to catch us if you do something not PC. If you follow the new rules of HR in the 90s, who – if you are compelled to go seek out blood sport, quote unquote, to John McCain, right? In order to find some release and connection to some machismo deep inside is, is how feel- – is kind of positioning it and the thing that's the tension there for me is on one hand he's talking about martial arts and combat sports as a way to create identity from a uh, a non-privileged position but then he slips constantly into the privileged spectator position without questioning it and i'm hoping that that tension resolved by the end of the series
3: Yeah, so much of that for me i completely agree that was the biggest sore point for me uh and also just positioning this as well this is what working class white bros do This is what they're into. And it's like, I'm sure some are. You know, I I know plenty of MMA fans who don't fit into that. And I know plenty who do. uh, But frankly, it has been a sport that, okay, there's a lot of problems with it. There are a million problems with it. Uh, But for myself and for a lot of the women and the queer people and non-binary and trans Mm -hmm. people that I train with or that, you know, I know and I can cite a couple pieces here that have been really instructive, I think. um, It's so empowering. And it's so empowering for so many people who are not in that group, right. who are not just like, well, I'm so mad at women, uh, but I can't say anything because I'll get thrown out of the office. Like, it's not, you know what so I mean? So here's like, my it,
0: 1999 for the pay-per-view. Right. Like, right, I right, can,
3: right. I, I understand where that thought process might be coming from, and I understand that that might be true of a chunk of the audience. But I, I begged to differ, uh, you know, certainly during that portion of this. And I also... Um, I really hope they go into women in MMA, and Mm -hmm. I really hope they go into, and I assume that they will, obviously. There's a picture of our girl, Angela Hill, in the first, uh, among the first pictures of MMA. So it's like, all right, cool. Which, Mm -hmm. by the way, she was subject of a Waypoint documentary. That's true. Um, Yeah, exactly. She's great, and she's awesome. Um, But the ways in which this sport Uh, Again, with all its problems, and it has many, uh, the ways in which this sport, men and women, women can actually be headliners in this sport. Women are not treated like in the WNBA, like a Mm sideshow to the main sport. Women could be the headliner. They can be the biggest moneymaker. They can be awesome. They can be rad. And as much as there's plenty of sexism and machismo in this sport, at the very least, women could actually be on the poster and not as a ring girl as right. the fighter. People are talked about as fighters. There is clearly still some sexism especially from the, you know, the kind of like the more meathead commentators and so on and so forth. But for the most part, people talk about the techniques that they're doing. They're not talking about their ass and their shorts or right, whatever. Right. It's like, "Oh yeah, she she did that, she did this, she did this." So it is absolutely a sport that is coming of age at a later time than most other sports where the women's version of the sport is Crucially different in some ways. The rules are different in women's across versus men's across. The ball is a different size in women's versus men's. It's actually treated with some decency. And there are queer women who are in this sport, open and out, and they have been open and out since the very first day women were competing. In the UFC, Liz Carmouche uh, was actually okay. It was UFC 157. It was the first (laughs) UFC fight where there women competed. Uh, It was Ronda Rousey versus Liz Carmouche. Liz Carmouche has been out the whole time, and nobody hid that fact. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a major headline fight last May uh, that had two queer women. They were on. They were the poster. This is the title fight, and in the sort of pre, you know, the, um, the packages that went out before that showed both of them with their girlfriends or fiancés. I think they're both whatever, the couples are all together and mm-hmm. like holding hands and being cute and actually being openly queer. And this is on the UFC's own material. This is not like, oh, they're, they're Instagram. Right. It's like they're out and they're queer and they're people of color and it's fucking awesome. Uh, so part of me is always gonna have that tension with this sport and feel like, oh my God, this is one of the first places where a major massive sport has women who can make as much money as the men and be super fucking queer. On the other hand sure being a gay dude in MMA is ridiculously hard I obviously know some because that's folks who I train with I train with a queer grappling group but it's not easy for a lot of people
0: uh, there's a there's a, a second thing here that I'm curious about your take on as someone who I know what your politics are, but I also yeah. know your love of MMA, and, and the same for for Rob and Patrick as sports fans. One of the things Felix slips into here and there throughout this piece is there's a bit where he's talking about uh, Helio Gracie, yes. um, and Helio Gracie is one of the huge Gracie clan, this this group of yes. Brazilian uh, MMA uh, aficionados and entrepreneurs royalty, royalty like you said, <laughs> um, who was sort of like um, one of the, the sports earlier – kind of jiu-jitsu's early proponents and defenders and like great – like champions of the sport, not in the sense that he was a successful winner, but in the sense that he was championing the sport and would take all comers to prove the strength of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And there, is, there are moments in describing Helio Gracie in which Felix says familiar phrases, things like – he put in the kind of hours necessary to win. He had a he had a superhuman effort. Like yes, others may have win, win you know one here or there or more, but he was willing to get maimed badly for it. And it, there is a a framing of him in this way that is this liberal individual hero. Put in the hours, work late, like keep going, keep hustling, and you'll win. And that's all over sports. Like that's not – the team that wants it most wins. The team that – you know, (laughs) are we talking about practice? We're talking about the game. We're talking about practice. (laughs) Like that whole conversation around Allen Allen Iverson was about not putting in the work necessary to win because core to so many of our sports stories are this idea of – is this idea of the liberal agent who if they train hard enough, they can win. When in reality, we know – every team trains really hard and there's only one winner at the end of the year. And I'm curious. Or God
1: intervenes. Or God intervenes. You know, act all, of God. Yeah, act of God. God decided you had to win today. Yeah, that's
0: fair. You're right. That's the other one. We do get <laughs> that a lot. Totally. A lot. But I'm curious because like, Felix is so Felix, right? We know who, Cha- who what Chapo is. We know that these are people who are hypercritical of the production of the individual, the production of the liberal subject, who the, the kind of mythologi- the mythologizing of the, if you work hard enough, you can be the Best, but even here he slips into it.
3: This is even more, if I may, as somebody who obsesses over Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and trains it every day. It's even more extreme. In BJJ, for sure, because every single school will tell you like this is the art where the smaller, weaker person mm. can absolutely tear the shit out of a much bigger, much stronger, much more athletic person. And right. You see the evidence of it. Like I, I have a, a friend who is a purple belt who is 4'11", 95 pounds. She's tiny and she could throw the guys who are 250 right. pounds no fucking problem every day I and it's if like this, this is, is real shit yeah
0: i wonder if that's where this goes is like is part of the attraction to mma and to jiu-jitsu yes. that
3: especially the grappling portion that's the striking I mean, yes. is very
0: I, there is, your is a tra- okay, time long, out, you're gonna quick, get hit if you're gonna fucking watch this there is a moment when <laughs> there is a moment in that first episode that is brutal to watch oh go yeah in knowing that there is an uh oh, a the kick Silva injury the silver injury is the, just if you can't look at that stuff. It is
3: a broken. Life. You is a were broken on Twitter leg.
2: that year. You saw it
3: though. You saw Trust it. Me. Like, I did not
0: you, see it. I missed that because I know. Yeah, I had not seen it either. I know I mean, what my I'm, limits I'm, are. <laughs> jello. Yeah. It's jello. Jello. It's unbelievable. Be careful. Yeah. Um, but for sure. it's part of the attraction to MMA for people that like we live in this world in which so much is. Preconditioned, and where the boundaries and limits are already preconceived, and privilege is such a factor that the promise of a space where tall or short, you know, whatever your weight class is. You can compete if you know the right throws and you can execute on them, if you can read your opponent. Here finally is the, is the, the invisible hand. That's my favorite technique. Um, <laughs> or here finally is the the, the kind of um, almost Rawlsian space without without pretext. Here is the space where the market functions properly. And the market in this right. case is like takedowns.
3: The main thing being – and to, to get at this even closer, um, the main being, thing being – if you're a human being, this won't work against robots, right? right. But if you're a human being, you have a well, lot. We'll get of, there. You have a lot of you can you can be choked easily. Anybody, the biggest thickest neck in the world, your carotid arteries are right here. Mm. Your joints are are so a lot of this was developed with like okay, what's weak on everybody? You have the biggest fucking dude break his arm like that. It just if you go the wrong way. So I think there is like such an attraction to this. However, that line, that sort of tagline of like the smaller weaker opponent can absolutely trash a much bigger opponent, also means you're going to need. 10 more years of training right. versus any, you know what I mean? Like, and okay, training is expensive. It's expensive as hell. It is not cheap. I will not go yeah. on to tell you how much I <laughs> spend on MMA training per month. Uh, it's a lot. Uh, but, yeah, it's expensive. And it is it is like the further up you go, the harder it gets, obviously. It is, it is really, really difficult to go from purple to brown to black. Like at my level, it's, you know, whatever. You're just kind of figuring things out. But – it is physically true that the smaller, weaker opponent can absolutely trash the shit out of a much stronger, much bigger opponent. However, there's a lot of other things that go into that amount of training mm-hmm. to make it that that difference. I'm so excited! We're talking Rob, about. Did you, I thought I
0: saw
2: a hand from <laughs> Rob a moment ago.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think,
2: I think two like two things sort of look, like live side by side here. On the one hand, uh. What you put in, the work you the work you put in, the hours you sink in, the effort, like that stuff does matter. That stuff yeah. does pay back. Like you, you know, you train hard so you can perform on game day. Stuff like that. And yes, there's gonna like both sides are trying to win. That's why it's a competition. But I don't think I think sports. What is what is one of the things that's alluring about sports is it at least promises on some level to be the place where the laws of the meritocracy are not self-serving bullshit at least for you know <laughs> one for 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 one game for one match for, for one bout that's you know that's going to hold true uh, but i think what this what this series does a pretty good job of saying up front is the this family is basically royalty this guy brought in like this guy's family worked closely with one of the greatest martial artists in, uh, you know, uh, like post, uh, uh, sorry, uh, in, in Meiji Japan, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to to work with them and 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 teach them, and so I I, I think implicit in everything this guy accomplished and what uh, Elio accomplished is this idea of. This is a rich aristocrat mm-hmm. who made it his life's work to throw a big dude because he was a little guy and he didn't like it. And he spent <laughs> yeah. a fucking fortune so that he could be the best at it. And he accomplished great things, you know, in that. But I don't think it erases the fact that like he founds this he, he founds this school of martial arts to teach his family and people like them. Uh, the skill set that they prized very highly. And when they found when they had competition from across town from a from a neighborhood they didn't like, they fucking rioted.
0: Yeah. Uh, and I so want I want a whole episode me. on just that fucking thing. There's what's what's it called? It's called the like
3: I, the vo- the Volletudo there There's like
0: the Valle like the it's like the something arena.
3: Oh, the Naga. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it's Naga.
0: I don't remember what it's called. I looked it up last night, but like about these two, the like the royal family of jujitsu and like the like low down and dirty street fighting. Street yep. fighting is probably not fair, but whatever it is in Brazil, uh, literally well,
3: translates to like anything goes. So it's not too okay. far. Okay. Yeah, I think, that- I think volley actually means like no rules or few rules or so something. Gracie is yeah.
0: like literally marched through the streets to their, their rival gym
2: and just There's like a long march.
0: It's like a long march. It's wild. And then there's just like a throwdown. I want to, I want to dock just on that. And that's that's a great story,
2: but also when it's the guys from the rich man's dojo, (laughs) fucking descending on another part of town, that also doesn't just sound like a fight between two doctrinal schools of martial arts. There's a lot of other stuff that's happening there. And so I think, you know, I I think in the way this series frames it, I, I think as a, as a, fight aficionado as an enthusiast. Uh, You know, Biederman, I think, does buy into and admires the craft and the skill and the work that goes into it. But I think in the way he frames everything, he's never really blind Mm -hmm. to the class relationships and the opportunities people get uh, to get them to this point. Uh,
0: We are just as guilty in a weird way, right? Which is like, the, look at any – look at – I was going to say any Red Dead coverage, but that's not true. Look at our Red Dead coverage, which is – and Kotaku's, uh, which is like, hey, there is a labor practice here that's fucked. But also because we know what the work looks like. There are times at which we need to – and feel compelled to say – and also these people worked fucking hard. These people put in long hours to do something incredible and blah, 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 blah. So I, I am a hypocrite. If I was like – and fuck Felix for this, I would be a huge hypocrite because like it, this does happen when you're this close to a thing is you can see the structural dilemmas. You can see the systemic injustice and also be compelled by the craftsmanship, by the work put in, by, by the people who do the, who do the work and yeah. you want to like celebrate that even though it often is tied up in with this really – this yes. tumorous, yes. like, organizational structure.
3: Completely. And there are fighters who are working to get a union going. Leslie Smith is a one of the are most – Are they not
0: unionized? They're another group no. that's – Okay.
3: Oh, God. That sucks. It's awful. Wait, I mean, we can talk all day about yeah, labor yeah. practices in UFC. It's <laughs> atrocious and terrible. But Leslie Smith, you can follow her on Twitter. She is working hard to do a unionization effort. She got cut from the roster for being vocal about – I am – you know – Sorry, journalistic intent. I don't know that this is directly what caused it. I can say uh, as a cultural critic that I suspect that is what caused it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, she's a fighter who has been working towards uh, unionization. Uh, and there is one part of me that, of course, in the spirit of all of this, in the spirit of loving the the game and not necessarily the the structure around it, there are a lot of amazing – and, of course, I'm going to frame this uh, for as a queer person uh, who does this in New York City. Uh, there are other cities that do have things like collectives that have, like, donation-based mm. training, very, very cheap training or completely uh, free training, especially for queer folks, especially for maybe gender nonconforming folks. There's a piece that went up today in them.us called Fighting Notions of Toxic Masculinity in a Trans-Inclusive MMA Class. There are organizations that are fighting to – Make MMA the most inclusive, rad thing in the world. Uh, there's a place called Trans Boxing here in New York City. Uh, there's several other organizations. So I want to shout those out because cool. those folks are doing the work to make this really inclusive and really awesome and to show folks the good and the empowering part of this versus, obviously, the where the money goes. Right. And, and lastly, um, the second episode ends on this like horrific note with fucking Dana White, president of the UFC cool endorsing trump uh at at the republican i can't even say it that's how upset i am republican you know republican uh national convention and i will say if you want to be as pissed at the gracies as we are at dana white they gave an honorary black belt to the new president of brazil the fascist
0: ah, awful
3: good. so that happened recently Great. Good. so i don't know man just uh if you if you believe in The beauty of this sport and the beauty of how it can actually be an equalizer. Support those organizations doing uh, awesome work at the ground level. All right,
2: and (laughs) we will take a quick break here, and then we will be back with big Wobots doing big (laughs) steppies. Great, good. So Austin. Hey, hi. Austin it, seems Walker like here. it seems like there's been some news on the mecha front and the anime front. Would you care to catch us up and oh set God. up this week's waypoint? I need you to know I looked for a beer
0: before I came back. We took yeah. a break. I went yeah. to the bathroom and I went to look for beer, <laughs> but there's no beer. There was a guy pouring wine and I thought about it, but he seemed like a little he seemed like he wanted to talk to me and sell me the wine. In the, in the, I don't know why there's Did a wine the salesman. I didn't try the second floor. Uh, so beer on the second deal. floor. We
3: always have beer. Fuck. Is that guy we just have beer and their... cups.
1: Maybe he's just a he's a Cowboy Bebop fan. He's he just could be. So That's he's the real dealing
0: with fuck. Dealing with newts. There, okay, so Netflix gave us a one. T- gave us by us, I mean the the anime, uh, the nation <laughs> the of anime world. lovers, the otaku of the world. One two punch this week. I'll tell you the second punch first, which is they announced a Cowboy Bebop live action show. Which listen, I am. I'm not who I used to be. I'm fine. Fucking make your stupid live action show. It's fine. It's not going to be good. It's going to be bad, and I'm going to watch it, and it's fine. I'm not. Cowboy Bebop's a great show, but it's more of a good show than a great show. It's in my top five anime of all time list, but it's mostly a good show.
3: Okay, all right.
2: What? What? You said it's mostly a good show, not a great show, but it's also in my top five of all okay. time. I so, don't like, really, I feel formative. Complicated. It was a
3: formative show.
0: It's a, f- a deeply formative okay. show. Right. And I, th- well, I is uh, we'll the difference talk between
1: like your your favorite show and your and the best show, right? Like, I, we try and like separate I, those yes, two.
0: I may have once given a talk about how there is no such thing as this, the the difference between those two things, and so I'm very complicated feelings about. it. We'll talk about Cowboy <laughs> Bebop another day. Okay, we'll talk all about right. that another day. Uh-huh. That's a different
2: thing. Uh huh. Today, but things that aren't complicated or are ambiguous.
0: <laughs> Let me tell you about Shinseke uh, Evangelion, aka Neon Genesis Evangelion, aka, uh, what is the actual name? It means like. Uh, Shinseke is it is the gospel of a new century okay. the gospel of the new century is what the name of the show means okay. um, Netflix announced earlier this week that they are bringing Evangelion aka Ava to uh, Netflix in the spring uh, kind of like an HD not even a remaster just they're bringing it to the streaming service including some of the, the it's movies it's not a remake it's the show okay. itself it's not a live version of the show it is the show itself Ava is a cult classic a, a critical success one of the most important shows in in contemporary anime history, um, if you're telling the story of anime, you tell the story of Ava, at least in brief. If you're telling the story about mecha anime, you stay there for a little bit. Um, it is a show – so if people don't know anything about the show, if you've never heard of what Evangelion is, uh, it is a show about uh, the very high level. In fact, there's a very funny thing to do, which is if you just do a Google search for Evangelion, Google gives its synopsis and it says, teens fight alien war machines, animated. And that's, that's it. Not, that's, <laughs> not that's Not good. wrong. It's All not right. wrong. It's not wrong. Um, It is a show about a uh, – the invasion, uh, a a sort of existential threat to to the world by these strange beings called angels uh, and it follows a character named Shinji Ikari who is brought in to a group uh, paid for by the UN uh, who is building robots to fight these strange invaders uh, on its face, it's very similar to a lot of other mecha shows, and in fact, that's not only intentional; that is kind of one of the, the points of the show, uh, and, and in fact, reflects the creator's history. Um, the The lead creator, the director of the show, uh, is is uh, someone named I always forget his first name. I know his last name is Ano, uh, uh, Hideaki Hideaki uh, Ano, uh, and he is someone who had made. Shows, made anime shows for years. He did a show that's pretty good called Gunbuster, which is another mecha anime show about fighting aliens. Uh, He'd done an animated movie for Gynax called Space Force. Um, And then he fell into a serious depression. Um, And he spent years not finishing anything, making stuff that didn't ever come to fruition. And then one day he was out drinking with a buddy from King Records, a record company. Uh, and the guy from King Records said, "Hey, you should make We'll get you a TV slot. Like we'll pay you to make something, make anything, and we'll pay you. because this is how it works. Like this is part of one of the ways anime gets made, especially anime shows, is that they are they're not just paid for by like a TV production company. They're paid for by a production committee that is co-owned by various corporate interests. Okay. um this is how, like, you know, We'll talk about Gundam a little bit, but like Gundam gets made partially through studio money, but also by companies, by like the companies that own the video game rights and that own the toy rights and the model rights, because they are pitching in for the production so that they will then get all of the royalties from those, from that merchandising. And so this record company was like, hey, just make a show. We got you. Just make something. And so Anno sets out to make something that is about not running away. Um, something that will interrogate his own depression and – Will interrogate mecha anime and in the years since he's made this show, it's taken on – it's been one of those shows that's – one of those pieces of media that's taken on such a huge uh, reputation as being a classic and has such a vocal fan base that it's become incredibly polarizing. Um, For some, it is overrated. It is, it is it, the latest in a long line of, of mecha shows, but not necessarily something that subverts them. Um, after all, mecha shows have, since Gundam at least, always been about the horror of war and the ways in which – Children are called upon to do things that they are not prepared for and that treats them as, as disposable uh, soldiers instead of as, as individuals in their own rights. Um, uh, and, and also a lot of those takes say like all of the weird symbolism, it's shitty. It doesn't mean anything. It's all bullshit. It's lots of people looking for something where there isn't anything. The other side of that are people who, who see a work that reflects their own lives, reflects their history with depression, their issues with their parents. Their, their their journeys uh, towards understanding their sexualities and their own identities um, and and often sometimes when pushed to extreme becomes a sort <laughs> of scavenger hunt for some greater meaning. As the show's use of Judeo-Christian uh, uh, iconography, uh, its use of Jungian archetypes, its use of existentialist and phenomenological philosophy, all is supposed to add up to something life-changing and life-affirming. Um I'm closer to that second camp. I am someone who who watched this show when I was young, when I was 15, 14, 15, um, through bootlegs, through overpriced DVDs. And this is the age of spending 20 or $30 on a DVD with two to four episodes oh, on gosh. it. Yeah. Um, downloading bad fan subs, I, I – told you all how to watch some fan subs on the internet because this is not yet on Netflix. I had you all watch the first two episodes of the series.
1: I remember downloading episodes on LimeWire is Absolutely. what I shared. I've, I've seen like the first episode of this. Of like course. Probably around the same era. Yep. Um, and th- uh, yeah, I think LimeWire is where I got my uh, shit.
0: <laughs> and like for me as a teen, I mean what I told you last night, Rob, you and I briefly talked about this. We tried not to burn any cast. But like at this point, the t- point at which I saw Evangelion for the first time – I had seen some Gundam, especially Gundam Wing, which had become popular through Cartoon Network. Uh, I had seen uh, you know, uh, some the, – the Battletech cartoon plus I had read a couple of those books. I had seen Robotech aka Macross um, and for all – and then of course other robot stuff, Transformers and, and some other similar things. And for me, they were cool toys. They were war machines, but they were mostly cool toys. <laughs> Even though Gundam Wing is filled with anti-war messaging, mo- mostly I was like, yeah, cool, cool, cool. But show me show me Gundam – show me like the cool wings. Let me see Gundam Wing turn into a plane again. That shit was sick. Um, and Evangelion was the first thing that made me realize I should hate giant robots and that mechs are scary and that there is something fascinating about the idea. And if you've listened to my other work, you know this, that we would ever decide to build – giant war machines in our own image. There was something not – inhuman about a tank. Why is it that instead we decided to build giant robots in these shows that look like us? Mm. What is happening there? And Evangelion was the first time I ever started to have those questions. And so for me as a a storyteller, as a critic, as a fan, this was a really important show. And it was really fun to revisit it. And I'm so curious about what you two or you you three watched – thought about those two episodes I had you watch, which were the first two episodes. So just like before we get into my feelings about it, like what do you think –
1: I like the fact that it just jumps in. Like yeah. Like, I expected uh, an enormous amount of, like, and this is both true of anime and of most media, is like, all right, first five minutes, like, set up that world for me with a narrator, man. Mm-hmm. Like, let's do this. And instead, <laughs> uh, I was impressed by the fact that the world building is really subtle. It allows you to make sort of leaps and inferences about, like, what's happening. Like, you're just told, oh, yeah, we call these angels. Why? Wait, what? Like, <laughs> yep. It's been 15 years? Well, what happened 15 years ago? Like, you know, obviously questions that might, you know, like any good storytelling, like it'll go around to that. But I was impressed by the fact that it was more interested in like the immediacy, which reflected like the immediacy of the character Shinji as in the moment that he's thrust into. Like that's reflected in all sorts of the storytelling that happens, especially in that first episode where you were just tossed into a situation, and like despite the fact that you know Evangelion is is older at this point, like it still felt like refreshing and interesting. And I'm I'm unfamiliar with most of the storytelling. I will say, watching the intro, lots of internet memes made a lot more sense yep. to me.
3: <laughs> yup.
1: <gasps> because all sorts of images and screen caps, I was like, "Oh, that's." Uh-huh. I mean, I, like, knew it on some level that I know that like so much of like geek culture, yes. internet geek culture, is like rooted in. Anime and like a select series of anime like Dragon Ball and, and Evangelion. Like, I knew that on some level, but like, 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 Shinji's father, I was like, oh, fuck, that's what that's that, that guy's that guy. from. That's yeah, guy. like, uh-huh. I've seen, I've seen giant text laid over that of man's face. Of course, of course. All sorts of times. <laughs> um, so that's always fun when like you, rev- you find a work that like suddenly fills in a lot of gaps mm-hmm. of like culture. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, I, I, I really enjoyed the first two episodes, like a, a lot because, uh, I got pulled into the world because of the lack of explanation. Like yeah. I, I found myself curious about filling in those gaps going forward. What
0: the fuck is an angel? Good question. What the fuck is the human instrumentality project? Good question.
1: They just use terms. Like they just throw terms out constantly, but they don't feel like gobbledygook. They feel right. like they're said with intent as though like, look, man, we don't have fucking time to explain this to you. Like, <laughs> of course you that, know what an angel is. Th- 15 yeah.
0: years ago, remember? Like, yeah, But it doesn't It doesn't usually do,
1: – it's like usually like exposition is filled with – or do, dialogue is filled with so much like accidental – or purposeful ex, uh, exposition in order to like sneak in world building for the audience member even though the characters would never talk that way. And Gelling doesn't seem to do any of that up front in a way that I found to, to really – that I
2: really appreciated. And that dovetails was something I really have enjoyed in these opening episodes. This is a world where things are happening and nobody is going to tell you why. They mm-hmm. have their reasons. Fuck you for asking. You know what I mean? Like, like this is a world of silent gods. Yeah, in, in a lot of ways. Like, and you know, part of it is the uh, strain, the strain, the shattered relationship uh, between Shinji and his father, uh, who seems very much like just an indifferent Old Testament, uh, you know, figure who you know sacrificing his children uh, for to, to complete his own design. Um but it also like the imagery is heavy handed but shit I love heavy handed imagery There's <laughs> yeah. this moment where the the kid <laughs> is being taken on this escalator into, like, the heart of it's the like mech a, facility. Yeah, it's like a car escalator. Yep. <laughs> and people are talking. No, no, no. This is when he's on the, oh. the personal escalator. Oh, oh, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Um, and so people are talking over his head, literally talking over his head about what they're up to. And he's just, like, downcast eyes. And in the background, stretching out of the Oh, it's the so good! Is this <laughs> giant, like, hand in a claw grip. Reaching out for him, and he's framed against it briefly, and, right. then, and then it's passed. And it's such—it's such a great moment. And, and they don't talk s- about it.
0: It's not, it's not, Shinji doesn't turn. I mean, so, so part of the reason why you don't get that exposition is because Shinji, who is like deep in his feelings, is not asking anybody anything. I promise you there are exposition dumps in Evangelion eventually. Um, and you get them through through what feel like natural channels. Or at least I remember, it's been six or seven years since I watched this whole but, but show. But the fact
1: that it's not happening in the first two is episodes, important. which, is, which yeah. is contrary to, especially this is probably uh, uh, because so much like modern narrative does all of that. Up front of, like, you know, you know the the, the classic Star Wars scroll yeah. uh, or something like that. Like, you get all of that in a way that Evangelion, at least in the first two episodes, isn't doing. So it's like, yeah, of course that's going to happen eventually. But at least up front, like, it is, it is striking and telling that it's not doing that, at least in the first two episodes.
3: I, uh, to, a couple of things immediately came to mind. First, it was beautiful. I loved the first shots. The first few shots where it's just – Ambient noise, yeah. and you see the angel kind of walking in. Is before any of the the war mm-hmm. machines are like actually firing on it, but they're all lined up. You just hear like seagulls flying yes. by and the water. And I was like
0: cicadas and
3: yeah, yeah, cicadas. It, really strong cicada noises, oh, yeah. and it was Welcome just like anime. They're everywhere. Summer, <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. like it was very, very evocative. So I thought that was really rad, and also like similar to you, Patrick. A lot of things started to make sense. A lot of friend's screen names started to make sense. Oh, really? A whole lot of like, oh, that's where this is from. (laughs) That's really funny. As well, (laughs) which is very funny to me because I've always been like, what's that from? And they're like, oh, have you seen this thing? Also, I had this preconceived notion forever. Cause that, you know, through osmosis, that no. it was actually angels, like oh, angels from well, heaven, right. and Bibles, and you I'm not re- saying it's I not mean, that.
0: Have but you ever read about what angels actually look like in Christian? They're supposed
3: to be pretty terrifying. They're
0: like actually it. supposed to be pretty terrifying. Yeah. And so, like, that's one of the things that's super fascinating okay. about the way these angels are. Is sure. like, oh, these things are inhuman, or if they have humanoid figures, they are not like idealized the way renaissance painting angels are they are they don't have
3: big white fluffy feathers they're actually like very grotesque looking from what i remember so i was very i was like oh that's what the angels are because i knew there were angels in this Mm because at one point a friend was like well the plot is angels come to earth and and then they said a bunch of other things that i could not tell you (laughs) i don't remember it in the slightest but i was like oh angels came to earth okay it's it's religious it's a it's a Eastern take on Western religion—that's what it is. Okay, Which
1: you could buy because there's lots. I mean, go go back and look at Zenigiers. Like right. there's right. All, all sorts of instances right. of Japanese <laughs> stories like grafting um, Christian iconography and stories into it. So I I'm totally. with you. Like I could definitely see why you would buy that.
0: Yeah, totally. Well, so for me the thing that the takeaway that's like the through line for all of you, and it's one for me. Going back to watch this was I – mean, you're not going to know in the first two episodes if it speaks to you on that deeper level on that like, hey, this says something to me about my depression or my sexuality or my identity or about politics or about the history of the world or philosophy. Like who knows in two episodes. But what I can say confidently in revisiting it is that as a, as a work of craft, as, an, as, a, as a show, it's so much better than I even remember it. Because when I think about Ava, I think about some key sequences. There's a sequence later on in the series in which two pilots need to sync up their movement and they, like, listen to music together. It's, like, the idea of drift in Pacific Rim. Like, Pacific Rim doesn't happen without Ava, to be clear. Uh, and the idea of, like, s- s- uh, synced-up drift minds in Pacific Rim is lifted from that episode of Ava where they have to, like, match. Through. It's like, okay, I remember the, the robots dancing, basically. Okay, I remember, you know, this uh, encounter between Gendo and, and Shinji. Um, but I what I, don't, what I didn't remember was just the quiet moments that end up being really well made and i and i mean that in the most superlative way i can um there is beautiful shot composition, like you said, Danielle, throughout mm-hmm. the throughout the 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 entire uh, first episode. There's a massive robotic arm that you talked about, Rob, um, the like the str- the reveal of the mega city under the ground, and it's yes. just like weird pyramid. Oh, that's amazing um, wide shots of the like the city that's been taken by the sea as the angel walks towards it. Um, the moment at the end of episode two, where Shinji Shinji sees the Ava unit's true face in the reflection of the skyscraper. These things are just like really well. Composed. But there's also like beyond those big picture things that are saying something about ecology or whatever, it's just character moment stuff that's communicated the way good visual storytelling is communicated. There's a there's that scene. I like think episode two has two moments of this that I want to call out. One is there's the scene in which Shinji and Misato are leaving the uh the hospital. Shinji's been there since the encounter with the, the angel, and the the door opens, the elevator door opens, and Gendo is inside, and Shinji can't look at his. Father looks away. The door closes, and like on paper, that's already like okay, yeah, that's a good character moment to understand that Shinji has this fear of his father. His they're estranged. They have like where is the mother in this? Blah 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 blah. Really interesting stuff. But on the on the the screen, it's even stronger because it's mostly communicated through this long bright shot looking upward at them. You see like their bodies towering, looking at each other. Which in a show about giant robots, anytime that you're making people mm-hmm. look tall is important. And you, you're looking up at the the ceiling. And on Gendo's side, it is a super bright white fluorescent light, which also the, the whole hospital is just like bathed in fluorescent light and desaturated. And it's like in, it looks so good and bad at the same time, you know. Um, and on, on on the other side, on the side where Misato and, and Shinji are, it's kind of dappled and blue black. And like there aren't the, the grid kind of fades away and it's dark and like the door closes and you get them divided, And like dividing characters on a screen by way of physical interaction or physical like a physical object is like a classic school, like film school technique. It's oh, like, yeah. film 101, <laughs> hey, if there's a division between these characters, draw a fucking line literally on the screen. This happens in at the end of The Graduate. It's like a very popular scene uh, that includes this, right? It's like a classic, classic thing. And then later in that same episode, Shinji has to walk into Masato's apartment into his new home, and they frame it a similar way at his feet, showing him break the threshold. Showing him wait and then break the threshold. And that's just like good 101 storytelling that's quiet. Um, and There's a, there's another really quick one I'm going to do very quickly, which is there's a sequence. After that sequence, they, they leave the hospital. He gets into the car and they're going to drive to Masato's place. Masato is going to become his like foster parent effectively, yeah. almost like a big sister figure for him. Um, and uh, as they're driving through this tunnel, she's basically saying, oh, we got to have a party. And he's like, why do we need to have a party? Because I'm a <laughs> depressed emo teen. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, to celebrate, you know, we're, we're, we're roommates now. And he like turns to look at her and you could end the scene there. You could, sh- you could show the car drive out the tunnel. And instead you hear the sound of a truck approaching and it just goes like mm-hmm. – and there suddenly is light behind her and it silhouettes her and that's the shot that Shinji, Shinji sees. And this is why the show seems like it probably holds up for me is that's one of those things you don't even realize unless you're watching with a very engaged critical eye but which has an effect on you as the yes. viewer. It produces in you a sense of anxiety, a sense of uh, sound being disruptive. It puts you in Shinji's place where what you want is quiet and suddenly that's that's removed from the sequence. And so what you end up with is a feeling about Shinji, even though the show doesn't come out and say in that moment, and Shinji felt awkward about that car ride, <laughs> you get that impression. And the show is just very good at those sorts of storytelling techniques. And that was really impressive for me to revisit it. And I didn't expect any of that stuff. I remembered the, the plot dumps. I remembered the fights. <laughs> and the fights are cool also to be fair.
3: yeah
2: uh, go ahead I loved like things that I really enjoyed as well as that, that second episode as Shinji begins paying the cost for having piloted this war machine. And, and like, right away, like the cool relationship between pilot and machine, like mm-hmm. we were talking a little bit about this last night. There's this tagline that Pacific Rim never delivered on, but always like try- like advertised itself with, which was to fight monsters, we created monsters, yeah,
1: yeah, there's nothing
2: yeah. monstrous about the Jaeger program <laughs> no. in that movie, like they're big fucking robots piloted by you know cool national stereotypes They're <laughs> power rangers yes, yeah. like,
1: yes. like like it's like pacific rim trafficked in anime mecha and kaiju yep but actually it was just power rangers which i'd loved me some power well, rangers in like this Tommy heritage. the green ranger like please right. like send me that, I you mean, so that is this Ooh, you're fiction. a bad boy
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs>
0: we all like tommy come on tommy was Great, right? No, did we not all Tommy? No, said Tommy, was was Tommy, Tommy was, was good. Tommy was good. So Tommy you watched, didn't, was watch, didn't see I pa- was
3: watching Xena at the That's time. That's fair.
0: That's I'm fair. Sorry. Tommy is the. Yeah, anyway. Um so the, the thing I just want to briefly call out, Rob, that you you know, both of you in in with regard to Pacific Rim um is that Pacific Rim is clearly in this heritage, it's a show about giant or a movie about giant mechs fighting against kaiju. But that's also the history of giant mechs. Um, mechs begin, you know, in the in I don't want to get like super deep into the history, but like the first mecha shows are super robot shows. They're called super robots because they're super powerful robots and they're fighting aliens and they're fighting kaiju and they're emerging out of the same moment that shows like Ultraman are are gaining popularity and eventually the the Sentai shows in which sometimes it is Power Rangers and there are literally giant mechs fighting giant kaiju, right? That stuff happens for years. It happens through the 70s or through the 60s and the 70s really. I mean even further back, there are like – Straight up puppet shows with giant robots and stuff in the early, uh, the early to mid 20th century that like have giant ro- piloted giant robots in them, um, but they're always this kind of just like larger than life, separated from mundane from in- from the uh, the kind of weight of mundanity, separated from mechanics. Like maybe you have someone who has a remote control to pilot something, but mostly it doesn't matter how they're controlling it. Mostly they're just big robot suits, um, and. And then when Gundam hits in 1979, it shifts to be a real war story. They start calling these real robot shows to contrast with super robot shows. Mm. They're not real in the sense that they're hard science fiction in the literary sense. But in comparison to shows like Mazinger Z... They are, they are kind of hard science fiction. They, they explain why you might want to use giant robots because of weird particle effects and stuff instead of it just being like, oh, of course you use the big super robot. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> um, and real robots end up dominating the scene for another decade or two. When Ava comes out, there's this weird moment in which super robots are on the decline but real robots haven't had a real big breakout in a bit. And what Ava ends up doing is sort of synthesizing these feelings. It returns to the super robot model of this isn't about – this isn't like Vietnam but with giant mechs. This is about alien invaders and singu- singular powerful machines uh, who can give you superhuman powers. But it's all grounded in the costs of war, in the psychological cost of being a human period um, And 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 kind of brings in the terrified young pilot from Gundam. Um, Shinji is not unique in the sense that he doesn't want to fight. That is Amuro Rei, the hero from the first Gundam show, who is again a teenage boy whose father built the first Gundam. Like that is literally Same, the yeah. show of Gundam is Amuro Rei's father, Tamura Ray, built Gundam and he – because of a twist of fate, he has to stumble into it to save the day and protect people and he doesn't want to do it because he's a teenage boy. That stuff is literally that. So there's no subversion in that sense. What it is is it, it decides that the focal point of the show should be that Terror, um, and that you can make an entire show in the super robot space that almost stretches those things out. Because when you do have a singular machine, a singular living god, instead of it being a mass produced, you know, tank, basically. All of those feelings become that much more intense and and that much more um, – everything feels more precarious, right? Because if this one machine breaks, you're fucked, um, which is kind of where, where the show kind of starts. Is like, OK, this is our last-ditch chance. Um, right. There's that great line where basically Masato is like, are we really going to – can we just do this? And Gendo was like, of course, unless we defeat the angels, we have no future. People don't matter. It doesn't matter what an individual does. It's just throw them to the fucking dogs, throw them into the gears and hope for the best.
2: Well, and the fact this machine is, like, there's something unholy about it. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah. Like, oh, yeah. The fact that <clears> – <throat> so contrast this with, like – well, Battletech certainly traffics in this. Escaflowne, like, is a decent example of, like, if you're a good enough pilot and you, like, are at peace enough with yourself and you, re- and you really know thyself, uh, you'll be the best uh, – you you will unlock the full power of the Escaflowne uh, And Gracie-style jiu-jitsu. I was
3: just going to say – Like, if you have a black belt in Brazilian, burgers,
0: mechs, and fighting (laughs) the age of loneliness, you know?
3: Yes.
2: (laughs) But what I like here is from the first, like, there's sort of a watchful, alive sense to the robot before he ever even pilots it. Like Mm -hmm. the fact that like this thing is waiting for him and it needs him. Not necessarily to control it or pilot him, it just needs him to function, to to, fulfill its role. And there's something deeply creepy about the way that relationship is framed from the beginning. Uh, and I do love in that second episode the way the cost of that relationship borne out through uh, Shinji's obvious, like, PTSD that everyone's just ignoring. Yeah. Uh, and, I, like, I love the little details of, like, he keeps having these, like, brief, like, like really scary, like, quick flashes of things that, that have happened or that he saw. And they're, like, literally just, like, two, three frames long. Yeah. And then you're snapped back to whatever his present is and he's, you know, just trying to get accustomed to these new surroundings, but the thoughts keep breaking through. Please it's just imagine
0: 15 cool year old Austin with a remote control hitting pause as those little flips happen, oh, yeah. trying to get each still shot to see, okay, what's he thinking about? What's happening? What is the secret to unlock here? Which is not the way to watch the show, honestly.
2: Yeah. And yet I did it. Uh-huh. I was reading documents. <laughs> so I was like, Ooh, what's yeah. this say? Yeah. yeah. Well,
0: I think that's, uh, that's a, go ahead, Patrick, please.
2: Oh no, Go. You, I'll, I'll follow up back.
0: Very you. quick that's thing, fine. which is just to Rob's point about, the Ava Unit 1 needing Shinji, one of the things that's interesting there too in the history of mechs is that often you have the the teenage pilot who's like, oh, I'm the one who could do it the best. And so that's why you need, you gotta put Amuro in the Gundam because Amuro's piloted the Gundam. He's very smart. It ends up that he's a new type, which is a special, it's like a a Jedi, sort of, not really. He's like force sensitive, sort of, kind of. And so he's like really good at machines. He does, like Donatello, Amuro Ray does machines. And so there is like a degree to which the there's like oh the special individual Shinji is also the special individual that they, they say like there's a point zero 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 one percent chance that this is going to work but he's not special in that he's good at piloting <laughs> yeah. it he's special that he is literally the key you put in the slot to make it do anything and that is such a dreadful I mean so that is part of the commentary about this show is that it goes really dark places. It does want to inquire about Shinji's sexuality. It does want to inquire about what it means to have a broken relationship with your family. It does want to inquire about the way women are used and discarded. It does all of that stuff. Um, And then the response ends up being really, really rough to get into. Like there are death threats sent to this team because of how the show ends. Um, There are – and then they follow up with a movie series that rewrites the ending of the series – and it does it and it's like –
1: It's a two-part movie series, It's a right? three-part movie. Three I'm pretty
0: sure, sure End of Ava. Is, it's been years since I've watched End of Ava. But like the death threats show up on screen. Like the the End of Ava is like a big fuck you to parts of the fandom that were aggressive and terrible. And also this is a story about depression and it's written by someone who's working through his depression. And often it goes to places that are – Not just problematic in the sense that they engage with content that you kind of feel upset by or that you feel like has a a bad ideology behind it but are also just hard to deal with, cynical, nihilistic and that can put people off of the show in in a major way and I get that. Patrick, you had a point earlier that I stepped on.
1: That's okay. Like One, a, like your 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 pitch as a nihilistic the nihilistic pitch is actually that works for me. Like it's yeah. 2018 yeah, dude. like let's Sounds do good. this. Dude, <laughs> um
0: you would there's shit there's shit I want to talk about in this series that you don't know yet that is yeah, wild. I, well, it,
1: so I I yeah, like I, well so part of what was the hook and I have two quick points. One is that like um like watching the intro to the show like the introduction of of the angel um it reminds me a lot of like before kaiju became kaiju, in which it became like giant rubbery creatures yeah. just bashing the shit out of each other. Like, go watch um, the original uh, Godzilla. Like, yeah. go watch Gohira. Like, it is. Uh, there's a great Criterion Collection edition of it. Um, it is. It's a. It is still, despite you know the progress of digital effects uh, or even practical effects, like a very effective film. And it in in there's a sense of awe to like creatures that are, and things that are are beyond us, uh, things that that do come across to us as gods. And we are just small little things that have no impact. And like what I enjoyed about the intro was it, it got back to some of my, I mean, I enjoy the, the goofy, you know, aspects of Kaiju, but like my favorites are like the original Godzilla. I, the elements of the rebooted Godzilla that I tried to get back to that original sense of like, no, like this is like, something beyond our understanding that uh, is, is to be feared and, and both to, to look at in awe. And mm-hmm. so I think it really nails that part of early uh, sort of like a kaiju features that were actually about um, sort of respecting these giant unimaginable things, even as much as they threatened us. And two, uh, this show has a very weird sexual energy. Yeah, dog. Mm. Mm. Um, you ain't seen which, shit yet. It's a lot. I bet. So, like, there were like two shots in particular uh, that stood out to me. Um Like, one uh, was when they're in the car and the camera is positioned down in her crotch. And I expected, like, oh, right, okay, so this is going to be the thing, like, sexy anime lady. Like, he's going to, like, start, like, trying to, like, look over at her. And, like, this is going to be the moment where, like, the reason it's angled down by her crotch is like, he's going to go, like, look over her and, like, start sweating. You know, like, he's attracted to her and doesn't know how to deal with it. (laughs) Um, And then the second one was, like, when they're, one – deep respect for the amount of malt liquor this woman can put down. Yo. Like, uh, this reminded me a lot of early days with me drinking with my wife where we would just get, like, a 30-pack and have way too many of them, and they'd all stack up on a table. So, like, enjoyed that part. Mm-hmm. But two, there's just, like, the shot of her ass out of nowhere um, that, like, yeah. just positions right behind her. But what's weird about both of them, um, and again, maybe this is more clear, and the reason I call it weird sexual energy is because the shots don't feel especially sexualized. They just... I mean, they are, but they aren't, like... Leering in the way I don't know, like I, again, like I can't... camera angles,
2: but not right. necessarily. Well, because like... the
1: guy, like the like Shinji doesn't comment on it, right? Because there's 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 the A, which is the creep shot angle, and then there's usually the B, which is character reacting to that creep yeah. shot angle, and Shinji does not react in either scene. Um, and so like there's this dynamic that's being set up in which it's like oh, like you know older woman, younger boy, but like you know eventually like. They're gonna have sex, uh, like, or it's gonna get weird, um, and I don't know. Like again, like Austin, you're alluding to a lot. There uh, is a lot where uh, stuff, so, where this would go. But like, I just the first uh. two episodes set up a very strange sexual energy that is both different than what I expect from like the anime trope of how they would set up like this dynamic, and I just have no idea where it goes from here because I don't even know what the the show is communicating with the with what it's the, the there shot, now. The, the shot frameworks card. are so are so specific. Right. That I, I find myself confused in an interesting way. I just don't know what to take away from it, um, from from what I've seen so far.
3: I was so confused by the postcard at the very beginning too. I was like, is, is she like a honeypot kind of? Yeah, that's what that comes what's across. Going on here? Yeah, and I, I. Clearly, just confused well, about what so that was what was going on. There,
0: there is so there's like two answers. One, I think that whole sequence when they go back to Misato's place and they reveal Pen Pen, the penguin, <laughs> this, the fucking rad-ass
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> rude penguin. <Hey. laughs> Picking up the can is a va- great the, visual gag. The,
2: the I straight the up. Can just a the just fucking roommate.
0: I know. I want Pen Pen as a roommate, too. Um, the reveal, yeah, the mat, there's like, this is a box of toothpicks underneath the the malt liquor can to not reveal Shinji's uh, dick is like, okay, wow, well, lot's happening here. Um... Uh, and also, I don't know if any of you watch the next time on that happens after the end credits, mm-hmm. which are "Fly Me to the Moon," by the way, and great. Um, <laughs> but in the in both of the end credits, Misato is the narrator, and she's like, "And there'll be fan service referring to her, t- t- her TNA, ah, right? right, her right. ass a- up on the screen." Yeah, and this is one of those like very contested issues in the sh- in the series fandom, partially because the game or the game the the show absolutely objectifies women in the ways that anime often does and partially because the show objectifies women in the narrative in important ways that are hard to it is hard to know if it is a successful satire or if it's just doing the thing anime does sometimes and by that mm-hmm. i mean this is a this is a contested field uh, ava rele- uh, released in 1995 1994, 1995. Okay. it has been you know uh, Years, 20-plus years of debate around this stuff. This is part of why there's so much energy around this Netflix re-release. It's like we're going to fucking live through this discourse, aren't we? This is going (laughs) to – the discourse is fucking coming. Like how long until Ava is too problematic when in fact it is problematic? But it's also this look at – Things like depression and then specifically – this, this points to the Misato stuff. There, there are two other characters. You, you saw Ray a little bit, the blue-haired <laughs> girl with – who is like crawling out of her fucking stretcher to try to get back into a robot at one point. Um, and then another, another uh, uh, young woman named Asuka uh, who is uh, – who are both objects of sexual interest for Shinji but also – but also Shinji's – Sexuality and his queerness end up being a central factor in the later half of the show. Hmm. Him struggling with the fact that he has attraction to other men. Mm. Spoilers. On top of, yeah, it's important. It's worth knowing this. Okay. And it's not It's not worth knowing it because it isn't. Flexible. I'm just saying because we're, we're,
2: okay,
1: yeah, yeah okay.
0: We made, I, made, oh, made some
2: promise that. You're already committed to this, huh, Patrick? Patrick? Patrick yeah, is yeah here. I am.
3: I'm in.
1: I'm Go in ahead. too. Doing it. Yeah. Yeah, with we yeah, in the spring we're gonna do uh when it uh, hits uh, yeah, be good and rewatch it and we're gonna just watch this whole series. I'm fucking in. Let's do this. Let's do
0: it. I'm i this here is for turning
1: it. into my Dragon Ball Z, like neon Genesis Evangelion I'm in. Hell yeah. Finally. Finally. We <laughs> I mean,
0: did it. I, <laughs> Waypoint's been worth it.
3: It's finally come together. It's all been worth it. Um, like
1: Austin, Austin, I got you to seriously sit and critique four fucking Purge movies. The <laughs> least I can do. True. The least I can do. <laughs> Those movies are great. Right,
0: all said. The, I know. And I,
1: Yes. I'll have the same response to this show probably. Probably.
0: Pro- uh, you know, there's ooh, there are some things that <laughs> everyone at this table are going to have some fucking thoughts about. I'm excited. Good. Oh, and there's another thing here which is that Ava is also in the middle of do du- uh, in the middle of a sort of renaissance in a se- in a sense. There is we're in the middle of the release of four different uh, Ava movies, is that right? Yeah,
2: four. four it turned has what? Four has not come out yet. So Wait, I thought the last one was just a big fuck you to fans and it's done. That was
0: End of Ava. Starting in 2007, there have been a series of things called Rebuild of Evangelion, aka Evangelion, the new theatrical edition, which have been retellings, movie-based retellings of the show, with some major differences. I haven't seen these at all. I never got around to them because I'm waiting for them all to be done. And three of them are out Two thousand one came out in 2007, one came out in 2009, one came out in 2012. The last one is due out in 2020.
1: Oh, so, important. Uh, so connected to that, the reason that last one has been delayed is because um, the last Japanese Godzilla film was directed and written oh, by right. the Evangelion guy, Anno. Yeah. Um, and that film uh, is uh, – is a I haven't seen it yet. Now this is gonna be an excuse to finally go sit and watch it because I can't watch <laughs> Evangelion until the spring, right? And th- the new one is essentially like him trying to find to re to recontextualize the original Godzilla film, right? In a, like to re to find a way to be scared and 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 mortified of Godzilla as a creature and in a political context in the same way that the original Godzilla dealt with our fears of nuclear annihilation. So right. like that's. These movies take forever. Like, but I remember hearing about those because people were kind of pissed that he was working on a Godzilla film because it was going to delay any work. That's on extremely funny.
3: That's I haven't seen that.
0: I really want to see that too. We should watch that between now and then. There, there's yeah. one. That's that's an easy that's an easy one to add to the, mm-hmm. the be good and rewatch it list. Mm-hmm. There's so much more to talk about. Like again, even just in terms of the sexuality stuff with Gendo, his father trying to you know push on Shinji what a man is. Like that stuff, it does go there. And I the thing that my big takeaway from this revisit of it has given me is that. <sighs> if it works in the end and again we'd have we were going to have to rewatch it to see if it works for us and and if all of its contradictions and its nihilism and everything else do add up to something really special i suspect it will for me but i suspect it will because of these little moments not because of the symbology and the and not the fan service and not the you know the even not even the mech fights though those are really cool like that mech fight is dope that monster is cool it does feel strange and different it does not just feel like this like a, a kaiju in the very mass produced, you know, it's a big monster, rubbery monster sense. Um, but I think it's those little moments. It's those quiet character moments. It's the way uh, the shot composition happens. It's the music. The music in the show is fantastic all the way through. Um, and it is the way it is knowledgeable about its place and time in history. That I guess for me the very last thing is – and Rob, you and I again briefly briefly talked about this, is when Unit 1 is finally revealed on screen, not just a hand in the distance, not just a, a head poking out of weird green water, it emerges and they begin to do work on it because they have to prep it for launch. And this is a sacrosanct uh, type of sequence in mecha anime culture, the like reveal of the machine. This is what the series is based on. Run out and buy the model kit. Run out and buy the, the toy. Quickly go buy the game. This is the hero. And it plays the the triumphant swell. It has the orchestral music come in as if like, ah, we were showing you your God is here. But it's like this sickly purple green monster. And it has weird ridges where there should not be any. And it is spiked where it should be smooth. And it, it has a mouth. Why does my giant robot have a mouth? What's going on there? And that is like it is sick in, in, a, in a really powerful way, right? It's like uh, Gundam was always already Evangelion, right? The Gundam is already a sick monster. But because there is a toy deal <laughs> – you got to make it look good. That's not a joke. Gundam was remodeled over and over again until it looked like a good toy. And the creators of that show knew what the fuck it was. That is a show about like, fuck off with war. Like, you know, protect the people you love, but don't be a warmonger. These machines make us the worst versions of ourselves. Truly, we should retreat until we are swans in in nature. Um, But the show has to put on the show. And Evangelion from the jump is not only not putting on the show... It is not interested in it and or it's in perverting the, the show. A hundred percent. Or it's revealing the perversion that was always always there. Yeah. Not to get too Zizekian about it, but like <laughs> the, I I'm not gonna do my Zizek. <laughs> nope. I would I would cover Danielle and spit. But so imagine, I, imagine, imagine what Zizek. Yes, a hundred percent. I'm sure Zizek fucking loves Ava, actually. Anyway, that's Evangelion. We'll return to it in a few months' time, whenever Netflix deigns to to grace us with its presence. Um Hopefully that Cowboy
2: Bebop show is out by then, too, because I'm sure oh, I'll have thoughts on don't that. Don't be oh, Also, there's a live-action Korean version of Jinro. I need people to tell me whether that's good or not. It doesn't look good. <laughs> While Seems we're in to Jinro is neon cyberpunk. Uh, so oh. that seems like the wrong thing to take away from that. But anyway, if people have seen uh, the, the live-action Jinro... Let me know. Uh, anyway, that will do it for this week's Waypoints. Our thanks to Two Mellow for the track Slide Asleep off the album After Midnight. You can find that at twomelomakes.bandcamp.com. You can keep up with all of us at waypoint.vice.com. I'm Rob Zachney. You can find me on Twitter, at Rob Zachney. Patrick, where can people find you? At Patrick Klopik. Danielle.
3: Practicing MMA, at Danielle R.I.
0: Austin. Austin underscore Walker. And I'm just going to plug my fucking thing. If you think listening to me talk about giant robots is cool, you should listen to Friends at the Table's second season counterweight. It is all about this shit. It is literally me trying to work through my feelings about giant robots. Look it up.
3: Nice.
2: All right. Well, we hope you've enjoyed the break. We'll be back again with Waypoint Radio uh, later this week. We hope you'll join us again. But until then, do not give in to Astonishment. All right.
3: Good show.
2: Good. Okay, so Austin, hold on though. Yeah. When Shinji sees the reflection from the mech's head. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm not going wrong. That mech's head is on the fucking ground. No, the
0: armor has fallen off of the head, revealing oh. an organic interior that okay it, it has an eyeball it has flesh yeah. it, is it regrows like, it, it regrows but yeah no no he's not seeing the head on the ground he's seeing the, the it's as if the knight's helmet has fallen off to reveal in fact it is not a big robot it is a big creature and he has been inserted into it
2: hell yeah
0: we That's are we so you know lest we become them it means it so just fucking wait
1: Get that luxury vibe
0: without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince dot com slash upgrade for free shipping and three hundred sixty five day returns on your next order. That's quince dot com slash upgrade. Wait, on um, My he guess is he ran out to prob- get water. Oh, did
3: he also? It's just water. Yeah, okay. I think so. I
0: don't think it's going to be. It's a great song. <laughs> I didn't even know I was doing it. It's so good.
3: You've earned in cast he was, over here. He
0: was whistling uh, Cruel Angel's Thesis.
3: Oh, good.
2: I've heard that the- song exactly twice in my life, and it's lodged Really? my head. You've Dude, heard quite- I have never seen any Evangelion. But
0: you've never seen, like, it's never been, like,
2: sent to no you. No AMVs? No AMVs, no, no. no weird. Uh-huh. <laughs>